Let's turn together in the Gospel of John. John chapter 12. We're going to read from verse 34 to 41. The crowd then answered him, We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so that the darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes. And he hardened their heart, so that they would not see with their eyes, and perceive with their heart, and be converted, and I heal them. These things Isaiah said, because he saw his glory, and spoke of him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I ask, Lord, that as we give our attention to this portion of Scripture, that you would reveal yourself to us, Lord. You would show us your nature. You would show us how awesome you are. That you are a God to be feared, and you are a God whom we can run to and we can trust in and take refuge in. And Lord, I just ask that you would uh, use this time. Please take me, Lord, and use me to communicate your word. In my weakness, I pray that you would be strong. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Today we come to a very daunting portion of Scripture. Sixteen hundred years ago, when the brilliant theologian Aurelius Augustine was preaching through the Gospel of John, so what we're doing here is not unique by any means. Augustine came to this very section of Scripture, the Gospel of John, and here's what he said to his congregation. Here we meet with a question to treat of which, indeed, in, a, in any adequate manner, to investigate all its mysterious windings and to throw them open to the light in a befitting way is, I think, within the scope neither of my own powers nor of the shortness of time 
nor of your capacity. In other words, Augustine said, we've come to a very challenging passage of scripture and Augustine is recognized to be basically the Christian Aristotle. <laughs> and he says, this is beyond my capacity, it's beyond your capacity, and it's beyond the capacity of time that we have to deal with it. I feel the exact same way. And I'm not the Christian Aristotle. Why is this passage so daunting and difficult? What is so challenging about it? Well, let's just consider what's, what we see on the surface. What is clear on the surface should clue us in to why this is so difficult. John stops the narrative of his gospel. That is, he's telling a story and he's giving us events and he's telling us who said what. And he stops the story here in the passage that we read to give us something of an epilogue, that is, to wrap up the second half of the Gospel of John. And in order to contemplate the unbelief of the nation of Israel. Did you see that in the passage that we read? He stops the narrative to contemplate the unbelief of the nation of Israel, their rejection of Jesus, and more importantly, to explain it. So John wants to stop and say, here's where we've come so far. Here's everything that Jesus has said and done. And here's been the result. Why? Why have they rejected him? And what are the reasons that he gives? Just on the surface. Look at verse 38 with me. So we see in verse 38, John tells us the reason why Israel rejected Jesus and did not believe in him is because they were fulfilling prophecy. There's a reason right on the surface. They were fulfilling prophecy. This was done, John says, in order to fulfill what Isaiah the prophet had spoken, Lord, who has believed our report? And it's important when we think about prophecy that we realize that prophecy is not simply God looking into the future kind of through a binoculars and saying, wow, and it's not God simply seeing into the future and then reporting to us what he sees. That's not simply what it is. As if God had no say of what goes on into the future, as if God had no hand in what goes on into the future. He just, he's as curious as we are. He looks, he says, wow, that's what it is, and he tells us. That's not what prophecy is. For example, in Psalm 110, verse 4, he says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He doesn't look into the binoculars and say, Jesus, do you realize that you're the priest forever after the order of Melchizedek? No, he, it's, it's God determining that. It's God making that happen. It's not just God seeing that and reporting it to Jesus in delight. Isaiah 53, verse 1, Lord, who has believed our report, is all about the rejection of Jesus and his death for our sins. Amen. His substitutionary death, which we recognize is planned by God. This is not something God is merely looking into the future and saying, Jesus, I don't think anyone's going to, no one's going to believe in you. You're going to be crucified, right? He's not prophesying in that way. He's prophesying and telling us what he's going to do, right? What he's planning. Jesus will be rejected and crucified for our sins, and that's part of God's plan. What is the second reason John says that Israel didn't believe? Verse 39 
and 30 and 40. Look at that with me again. For this reason, he tells us, they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, God, or excuse me, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. In other words, on the surface, John says, the reason they haven't believed is because of God's hardening. And that raises all sorts of questions, doesn't it? So we've got on the surface two explanations. It was to fill prophecy, and it was God's hardening that they don't believe. And so just on the surface, friends, you can see what a daunting passage this is and how difficult it is for us to wrap our minds around uh, what John is saying here. I think anyone who doesn't see how difficult this is is not really understanding the issues very well. David said in one of his psalms, there are things that are too wonderful for me to understand. They exist. There are, there are areas of theology and areas of knowledge that we can say things and we can know some things, but at a certain point you realize, I'm getting into to an area that I can't just easily explain. That doesn't mean we can't, as I said, say things about this subject, and we're, I'm going to say a lot about this subject this morning. But I do it with that recognition that there's a limit to what I can say. I believe this is one of those areas that's too wonderful for me. The ways of God are unsearchable. And so I preface everything with that. When I preach on Sunday mornings, or whenever I preach, I want to preach in such a way that if people do not like what I say, it's because they don't like what the Bible says. That's how I want to preach. So in other words, if someone says, Eli, I don't like what you're saying, I just want to be able to say, well, take it up with the Bible because I'm just, as a preacher, telling you what the Bible says and passing it along. That's what I believe my job or role is as a preacher, is to just pass on what Scripture is saying. And I don't want to preach my own ideas. I, I want to preach God's Word. And I hope you want me to do that. Now, I may or may not always be successful at that. And it's okay if you disagree with me and say, I don't think you succeeded in doing that. But that's what I want to do. And that's what I ask you to pray for me so that I can do that. And I, I would ask you to pray for me to do that by Sunday after Sunday. And this morning, even now, shoot a prayer up that this morning I'd be able to do that. And just pass on what the Bible is saying. And that's what I ask you to do this morning is as you hear me, don't weigh what I'm saying based upon what, is, is this Eli's idea, you know, I don't like it. Just ask yourself, is what I'm saying what the Bible is saying? So this morning I've divided the sermon up into three sections. First we're going to look at the setting of John's reflection on why Israel could not believe in Jesus. So we'll just set the stage. In the second section, we'll look at John's reflection of Israel's unbelief. We'll, get, we'll dig right into it. Why did Israel not believe according to John? And that'll take up most of our time. And then I'll briefly, very briefly close with some practical just a reflection on some practical effects of this doctrine that John is giving. 
what it means for us today. So there is so much to say, and I can't say it all. But uh, with that preface, let's begin. So first of all, the setting for John's reflection on Israel's unbelief. So we've come to the end of Jesus' public ministry. We've come to the end of Jesus' public ministry. From chapter 13 through 17, what do we see? What do we have, if you're familiar with the Gospel of John? What is, what is chapter 13 through 17 taken up with? It's taken up with Jesus' intimate inner room discussion with his disciples, right? Where he washes their feet and he gives a long teaching to them and a prayer to God. But it's not public, it's private. And then what do we have from, verse, from chapter 18 to the end of the book, 21? Well, then we have Jesus' arrest and his trial and his crucifixion and his resurrection. So when you consider the structure of the Gospel of John, what we're dealing with here in John 12 is the very end of his public ministry. After all that Jesus has done in public, after all that he's said in public, after all the evidences that he has pointed to that prove who he is, that he's the Son of the Father, what we see here is that at the end of Jesus' public ministry, Israel does not believe in him. And they're arguing with him. Verse 34, right? That's what we see. They're still arguing with him at the very end. You'd think at that point, they wouldn't be arguing with him anymore. They'd just be sitting at his feet learning, right? But they're arguing. And then in verse 35 and 36, based upon what Jesus says to them, it, the implication is they're not yet walking in the light. He's telling them, basically, please believe. They haven't believed yet. And then we're told explicitly in verse 37 by John that though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing. So that's the important thing. Jesus, has, Jesus came, Jesus taught, Jesus performed signs and wonders, and the conclusion of it all is they did not believe. So if you ever think, man, I wish I lived back in those days, because then I would believe because I would have seen Jesus and heard him teach and seen his miracles, that's just not simply true. Or if you think, man, I wish Jesus would come today and do everything he did then, then a lot of people would believe. That's not true. Because that's just not what the Gospels tell us happened. Now look at verse 34. It says, the crowd answered him. This is the very same crowd that, um, that hailed Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem. The very same crowd that looked to Jesus as the Messiah. And as we, as we looked at when we discussed the triumphal entry, it was a tragically misunderstood en entry. They thought Jesus was the Messiah coming to bring the blessings of the covenant of the law, right? They basically said, we are righteous, we have done it, here comes the Messiah right on time, right on schedule, here he comes, we praise him, we exalt, we, we, we recognize him, we cheer him, as he's coming into Jerusalem because he's coming to save us now. And Jesus wept. And so Jesus, in verse 32, has just said when he's lifted up from the earth and they recognized him speaking of his death. So here's this crowd saying, here comes the king, the Messiah, to, to deliver us. And then he's talking about his death. 
And that's what spurs their trouble or their question in verse 34. They're saying, wait a minute, we know that the law says, and by the law they just mean the Hebrew scriptures, the Messiah is going to remain forever. When the Messiah comes, he's not going to die, he's not going to go anywhere, he's going to rule forever. He doesn't go away. So what are you talking about? That the Son of Man, whom they understand Jesus is talking about himself as the Messiah, will be lifted up. So they're confused. The Messiah is going to remain forever according to the scriptures. You claim to be the Messiah, and we're believing you're the Messiah, but now you're saying you're going to die. I don't get it. And they, con they conclude with a question, who is this Son of Man? Which is a question that means, what is the Messiah anyway? Because you're presenting a radically different view of the Messiah than we understand. Who is this Son of Man? The Messiah, according to them, as I said, is coming to bless them for their righteousness. The Messiah, according to Jesus, is coming to die in their place because of their unrighteousness and their need for righteousness. No one can be blessed apart from the righteousness that God gives because no one is righteous and no one can be righteous by obedience to the law. They didn't understand that. So their conception of the Messiah is radically different than Jesus' conception of the Messiah, than the Christian conception of the Messiah. And that's one of the things that, as Christians, we need to teach, as we evangelize, as we talk to people about the Messiah. What is the Son of Man? What is, his, what, what is our right conception of him? What is his role? What does he do? Now, in verse 35 and 36, does Jesus answer them? Does he come out, well, the Son of Man is the one who's coming out of heaven as bread, to give his life for the life of the world so that whoever eats his flesh and drinks his blood will live forever? Does he say that? No, because he's already said that, right? He's already taught who he is and what he's come to do. Jesus doesn't give them an answer. And by not giving them an answer here, Jesus implies that their question is not an honest question. I've already told you. I've already explained that you're unrighteous. I've already explained that no one is good. I've already explained that I've come into the world to give my life as a ransom. And you haven't listened. And so he says, for a little while longer, you have light with you. I've been ministering among you. I've been teaching. I am the light of the world. I am telling you about God. I am telling you about yourself and about humanity. I'm telling you about God's grace and the way of salvation and what righteousness is and how you get it. I've been giving you truth, but you haven't received it. And Jesus is essentially saying, do not reject me, because if you do, you'll be left in darkness, and you won't know where you're going. If you reject me and what I'm telling you, you'll have, you'll have no clue what you're, what you're about in life. You will not be in reality. And they don't have light forever, he says. In other words, time is running out for you. Time is limited for you. How do we understand that? Time is limited for them. Well, we could understand it perhaps in this sense that Jesus will be leaving soon, right? He's going to, be, he's going to die, then resurrect, and then ascend, and he won't be there anymore. But 
that interpretation doesn't sit quite right with me because even after Jesus leaves, there's still light in the world, right? There's still the Christian church, the witness of the apostles and the, and the Christians preaching the light. So I think more probably when he says the light is with you only a little bit longer, he's just speaking of the, the general fact that people don't have forever and time is short and eventually the information and the truth that God's given, giving you will be taken away from you and you'll be left in darkness if you don't believe. Matthew Henry, the old commentator, says for us all to reflect on this, it is good for us all to consider what a little while we are to have this light with us. Time is short and perhaps opportunity not so long. This is a warning to those who haven't believed if you've not believed in Christ and if you're not yet in reality and in truth, don't take it for granted that you're always going to have that opportunity to believe. So Jesus warns them. On the other hand, verse 36, he says, If you believe in me, you become sons of light. Now that's a wonderful phrase. And being a son of light is not only that you are in the light. That's part of it. If you're a son of light, you're certainly in the light. You're in reality. You're a son of truth. You're a son of reality. You now know God and you know yourself and you know salvation. But to be a son of light is not only to be in the light, but it's also to be someone who is able to give light in this dark world. You both know the light if you're a son of light, and you can give the light also if you're a son of light. Amen? It's not only you know it, but now you walk around dispensing light. You are in this world a light because you know it. Every Christian is a son of light. So I'd like to remind you this morning, if you're a Christian and believed in Jesus and you know who God is, you are a son of light. Not just because you know the truth, but because you can give the truth and spread the truth in this world. And brothers and sisters, that is not only wonderful for your soul, that is an awesome privilege and the highest calling that any of us can have is to be a son of light in this world. It's the highest calling that we give witness and testimony of God in this world and preach the gospel and tell people about who God is for the glory of God and for the salvation of sinners. That's the, there's nothing you could possibly do that's more important than living as sons of light in this world. True? Yes. So I want to encourage us as Christians, since we know the light, let us be spreading the light. However, it's important to recognize, and Jesus says this many times, if you're a son of light in this world spreading the light, that inevitably means you're going to attract the hatred of the world, right? Because the world hates the light. Because the world hates God. And because the world hates who God is, they hated Christ, who was the revelation of God. And because they hated Christ, they hate the disciples of Christ also, who continue to pass on the message of God and of the light. So just, it's a high calling, but it comes with a great cost. Now look at the end of verse 36. Jesus, after saying this to them, urging them to believe and warning them that they don't have forever, what does he do? 
the end of verse 36, he hides himself from them. Now, why does he hide from them? They're not trying to kill him, right? Other times Jesus slips away and hides, it's because they want to kill him. This time he hides from them, but this is a crowd that's interested in making him king. And it's precisely for that reason that he hides himself, because not because they want to kill him, but because they are not listening and they don't know him and they're not believing in him. So his hiding from them shows that even after his exhortation in verse 35 and 36, even after his warning, even after his appeal for them to believe in him, they still don't believe and he hides himself. I mean, if they had turned right then and believed, he wouldn't have hid himself. But he hides himself basically saying, this, they're not believing no matter what I say. And it's interesting because him hiding himself leads us right into John's reflection on Israel's unbelief because him hiding himself is, in a sense, symbolic. Like an acted parable. I'm giving you truth, you're not believing, and the result of that is I'm going to remove myself from you and you won't know where I am. You want the Messiah. You're looking for the Messiah. But if you refuse to believe in the truth, you will not see the Messiah. And why won't you see the Messiah? Because he will hide himself from you. He will remove himself from you. It's like a picture of what we're about to say. And that leads us into our, this, my second point this morning, and that is John's reflection on Israel's unbelief. Now, as I said, John feels the need to stop everything, the flow of the story, the narrative, and highlight the result of Jesus' public ministry, which is rejection and unbelief on Israel's part, and he sees the need to explain why Israel has not believed. The, the commentator D.A. Carson says this, some explanation must be given for such large-scale, catastrophic unbelief. Some explanation must be, must be given. It wouldn't be sufficient just to record the fact that Israel didn't believe in him. That's a lot of people not believing. And those are the people among whom he ministered for three years. And those aren't just anybody. It's Israel, Right? These are knowledgeable people about God and religion. These aren't ignorant people. These are knowledgeable people. These are zealous people. Okay, so we can't say, oh, Israel rejected Jesus because they're indifferent to God and religion. No, actually, the, in the world at that time, we'd have to say that of all the nations of the world, Israel was the one nation that was actually very uh, not indifferent about God and very zealous about God and they rejected Jesus. And furthermore, it's Israel. It's God's people. Right? This is the people that God chose and brought out of Israel and instructed and betrothed himself to and uh, promised that they would be blessed. This is the same people and they've rejected 
him. So it wouldn't be enough just to say they rejected him. There has to be some explanation. And that was a problem in the early years of the church. And it's a problem all throughout the history of the church. And even today, it's a totally relevant question. Why has Israel rejected Jesus as the Messiah? You're gonna, if you get involved in discussions about religion and if you talk to the Jews, this is a live question. And the Jews, the Jews say, we don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. And the fact that the nation of Israel rejected Jesus in the first century proves he's not the Messiah. If he was the Messiah, they would have received him. And so you can read early Christian writings, and they're, they're actually very interested in this question of why did Israel reject Jesus? And like I said, it's still completely relevant today. We also need to give an answer. Now here's an interesting thing, brothers and sisters. It's not only John who's interested in giving an explanation for Israel's unbelief, nor is it Christian apologists throughout history who's interested in giving a reason or an explanation for Jewish, and Jewish unbelief. Jesus himself was interested, I would even say absorbed, with this question of Israel's unbelief. All throughout the Gospel of John, even in the Synoptic Gospels, if, you're, if you notice, Jesus himself is constantly explaining why he's not being believed in. So Jesus himself is determined to give an explanation because it's so important to. Let, let's refresh our memories. Chapter 5 of the Gospel of John. If you remember chapter 5 of the Gospel of John, I hope you do. It's the chapter where Jesus marshals a case, right? He marshals a case, why he is who he says he is, to back up his claims. And he says, look, I bring forth exhibit A, John the Baptist. Exhibit B, all of my works testify of who I am. That is, everything I've said and everything I've done points to me being the Messiah. Exhibit C, the Holy Scriptures, the Word of God, testify of who I am. He makes a case, and it's perfectly sound and strong. But then he says, but you don't believe. And then he, it goes on to say why they don't believe. He doesn't just leave it there. He doesn't just say, here's the case. Why aren't you believing? Oh, you're not believing. And what does he say at the end of chapter 5? He says, you don't believe because you can't believe at the end of chapter 5. You don't believe because you can't believe since you don't love God, since you care about the glory that comes from man instead of the glory that that comes from God. You can't believe in me. That is why you're not believing in me. Jesus explains their unbelief at the end of chapter 5. And he goes on, chapter 6. Jesus makes a statement in John 6, 36. He says, But I say unto you, you have seen me, and yet you don't believe. Jesus says that. And he doesn't just leave it there. He explains it. And what is his explanation? The reason why you don't believe is because you can't believe. Since no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. That's what Jesus says. He explains their unbelief. You don't believe because you can't believe since no one can come unless the Father draws 
draws. Chapter 8, Jesus says, why is it that you cannot hear what I'm saying? So he asked the question, why don't you believe? And he answers, doesn't he? And he says, you don't believe because you can't believe since you are of your father, the devil. So he's, he is explaining as he goes, as he confronts their unbelief. We could go on, chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 25 and 26, Jesus says again, I have already told you, but you don't believe. And he says, you don't believe because you can't believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. So again and again and again, Jesus explains their unbelief. And you see, friends, the problem is not insufficient evidence. That's not the problem. So look at verse 37 of chapter 12. John, raises, John says, As though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing. He had performed many signs. Many signs that John doesn't even record. If you remember at the end of the Gospel of John, at the end of the Gospel, John says, you know, if I were to record everything Jesus did, it would take, you know, the world would be full of books. And John says, you know, I've only selected a few of, there's a lot of signs I could have chosen, but I've only selected a few signs so that you might believe. So the interesting thing is John thinks, you know, the few signs in the Gospel of John are sufficient to make you believe. The Jewish people saw many more signs than what I've recorded, and they didn't believe. So the, the problem isn't that there was not enough signs. There was more than enough signs. The problem isn't that the signs weren't of a good enough quality. They were of an excellent quality. The signs actually did prove that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God. They were not the kind of signs that were ambiguous. They were stunning, extraordinary. We've looked at some of them throughout the Gospel of John. You know, you have people in the Gospel of John saying, when the Messiah come, will he do more signs than this guy has? Who's ever heard of people doing the signs that he's done, right? So this, there's, there's certainly enough signs. They're excellent quality, and they're public in nature. Look what it says in verse 37. He had performed so many signs before them. That is, these signs were not done in a corner. So we can't say, well, sure, there was lots of signs, and sure, they were great quality, but the problem is still with the signs because nobody really saw them, right? There wasn't sufficient exposure to these signs for people to believe, and that is simply not the case. There was yet another sign that is coming, and that is the sign of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. In chapter 2, they ask Jesus for a sign. They say, what sign will you give us that will prove that you have the authority to cleanse the temple and talk about your father's house as if you're his son? What sign will you give us? And he says, destroy the temple, and in three days I'll build it again. He's referring to his resurrection. So he says, my resurrection will prove who I am. In the Synoptic Gospels, they ask him for a sign, and he says, an evil and adulterous generation and I'm going to paraphrase, keeps asking for a sign when the evidence is already there. 
and no sign will be given to it at its request except the sign of Jonah, which is the resurrection. And so even after the resurrection, did Israel believe? No. They still don't believe. Turn with me to John chapter 15, and here's Jesus' final verdict on their unbelief. John chapter 15, and look at verse 24 and 25. Let's look at verse 23 first. Jesus says, He who hates me hates my father also. And notice what he says here because it's relevant to our passage in chapter 12. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. So he says, I've done all the works. Perfectly sufficient to prove who I am. And here's the bottom line and here's the verdict. They saw me, they saw the Father, they hated him, and they had no reason to do so. They did it without a cause, just because... They hate God. What a statement. They can't believe, they can't see, they can't hear, they can't come, brothers and sisters, not because the truth wasn't clear and obvious, not because the evidence was somehow inadequate, not because they hadn't sufficiently been exposed to the evidence, but they could not believe because they hated God, they hated the truth, and the only thing that can change that heart of hate is God himself and his spirit. That's it. And that's the point over and over and over throughout the Gospel of John. So here's the Christian answer to this question. Why did Israel reject Jesus as their Messiah? Well, Jesus was not rejected, we say, because he wasn't the Messiah. Jesus was not rejected because there wasn't a case that could be made sufficient to prove that. Jesus was rejected by Israel because Israel is evil and hates God. And it was foretold by the prophets. So it's not a surprise. God knew it all along and predicted that. So turn with me back to John 12, verse 38. We see that it was, it was foretold that they would reject him. All the prophets, not just Isaiah, prophesied this rejection. And all the prophets prophesied or, or taught that the ability of people and of Israel to turn to God comes from the mercy of God and the Spirit of God. This is the teaching of the prophets. The Messiah would be rejected. And so the question is, well, when will they not reject God? How long will this go on for? How long will it be that they hate God and nothing changes and they live under judgment? And the answer that the prophets give is, when God 
by his Holy Spirit takes out the heart of stone, when God by his Holy Spirit puts his spirit into them and causes them to walk in his ways. If God doesn't do that, then people won't follow after God. They don't have love for God. They have hate for God because people are evil, children of the devil. It's intense, isn't it? But that's not a surprise in the prophets. This is the teaching of the prophets. Look at verse 38. Lord, who has believed our report and to whom has the armor of the Lord been revealed? And we see in this, in this statement that to believe in the report is equivalent to having the armor of the Lord revealed to you. In, order, in other words, in order to hear the word of God, God must reveal the word of God to you. The word here means God must uncover he must open in order for you to receive what is being said. So hearing comes from God. Otherwise, we, we shut our ears and we close our eyes to him. And that is precisely the point, I believe, of verse 39 and 40. Why they could not believe. It says in verse 39, why couldn't they, John asks, well, verse 40 tells us because he's blinded their eyes and he's hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be convert, converted and I heal them. So why do they not believe? Because God hasn't revealed it to them, but he's hidden it from them. Now at this point, I'd like to raise what um, many people are probably thinking. I would like to imagine an, an objector. And at this point, there are objections that come to what I've been saying, right? And here are three objections, and I'd like to deal with them. And I'm sure you've already felt this in your heart, in your mind, because I, I certainly have. Number one, well, hold on a minute, Eli. If, if what you're saying is true, what does that say about the love of God, right? What does that say about his love for the world and his desire to save people and save the world? I thought that God wanted to save all, and this sounds like he does not, right? If he's the one who hardens and blinds and shuts the eyes, how does that fit with his love, which we read about in the Bible and we see on the cross? That's a good objection, isn't it? Here's a second objection. If people can't believe, as the, as the Bible is saying here, if people can't believe unless God draws them or works in them by his spirit, taking out their heart of stone, if they can't believe, then how are they responsible for their unbelief, right? Why does God punish them for not believing if they can't believe? That seems unjust. So the first objection is about his love. The second objection is about his justice. And the third objection that is raised to this is, isn't there some other way we can interpret this passage or these passages that we have to interpret it the way that you're interpreting it? Perhaps you're missing what is being said here. 
So I'd like to answer or address these objections in reverse order. So we'll start with the last one. Are we interpreting this wrong? Can we interpret this another way? Well, the vast majority of commentators, as I was reading their commentaries this, this week, understand verse 40 to be talking about God. He has blinded their eyes. That's God, most commentators will say. Though some commentators, not many, suggest that perhaps the he here is the devil. And you'll notice in verse 40, there's a transition in the pronoun from he has blinded their eyes, he has hardened their heart, to the last part of verse 40, lest they turn and be converted and I heal them. So there's a transition from a he to an I in this verse, 40. So they suggest perhaps the he is the devil and the I is God. It's the devil that's blinding people, not God himself. Now in response to this suggestion that this is not God but the devil, I want to say these things. Number one, a great many passages throughout the Bible say that God blinds eyes and hardens hearts. And so this is not the only verse that we need to consider and, and think about. A great many passages say that it is God who does that. So turn with me to Romans chapter 11. I'd just like to give you three examples. Romans 11. We'll just be brief here. Romans 11, verse 7 and 8. This is the Apostle Paul, and he quotes Isaiah. What then? What Israel is seeking it has not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Just as it is written... God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. So, Paul quotes another passage in Isaiah, chapter 29, and that verse clearly says that it is God. God is the one who closes the eyes and hardens the heart. Now turn with me to Isaiah 63, and I'd like to look at another passage in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 63, verse 17. Isaiah 63, verse 17. Isaiah asks God this question. Why, O Lord... Do you cause us to stray from your ways and harden our heart from fearing you? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. So here Isaiah says, God is the one who's caused us to stray and has hardened our heart. And then he pleads with God, please change what you're doing and come. Isaiah 64, verse 7. This is the next chapter. Isaiah 64, verse 7 tells us this. There is no one who calls on your name who arouses himself to take hold of you 
for you have hidden your face from us and have delivered us into the power of our iniquities. So again, Isaiah gives an explanation. Why is it that no one, why is it that no one believes in you and follows you and stirs up himself to go? Well, it's because you've hidden yourself and you've given us over into our iniquities. So my point in sharing these three verses from the book of Isaiah is to point out that the source of this idea, uh, or first of all, to point out that Isaiah himself clearly says that God hardens the heart. But I'd like to say this, the source of the idea of God hardening the heart is not from the book of Isaiah. Where is the source of this idea that God hardens the heart? Where does it first appear? Where does it come from? So that when we encounter it later in the Bible, we know what it looks like, we know what it means, and we can go back and say, oh, like that. What, am, what, is, what is the source of this concept of God hardening the heart? With Pharaoh, exactly. So we encounter the concept of God hardening the heart in the book of, in the Pentateuch, in the book of Moses, the book of Exodus, 15 times the book of Exodus talks about the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. And that obviously indicates how important this concept is. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. The book of Exodus firmly establishes this concept that God hardens the heart. And then we begin to see all throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, this concept appearing again and again and again. But it all comes back to the source, this idea that is seen with Pharaoh. Now the, the theologian John Wenham says this, and I believe he's right. Pharaoh was to become the type of all those who persistently hardened their hearts against the true God. In other words, what happened with Pharaoh was not an isolated event, one-time thing. Yeah, you know, God hardened Pharaoh's heart a long time ago. He never did it since, but that's what he did one time, long time ago. The story of Pharaoh and then the teaching of the rest of the Bible is meant to make us say, friends, not God did that, but God does that. Do you see that? There's a difference between God did that. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. He did it. And saying he does it. That's something that the living God does. He didn't stop doing it with Pharaoh. And we can go through the Bible and point out, hey, he did it here, and 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 here, and here, and here. And John's telling us he did it with Israel. So any attempt to say, well, we shouldn't interpret these verses to say that God hardens the heart, it really just goes against the testimony of so much scripture that God is the one who does that. Another objection to this is this idea that the devil is the one who does it is that saying that the devil blinds people does not rule out God in the equation. We know the devil blinds people. That's certainly true. The Bible teaches us devil is the deceiver and he blinds people, but that doesn't mean God isn't involved in that process. And we see throughout the Bible, God uses the devil and he uses lying spirits and he, he allows people to be deceived by false prophets and the devil as a part of his plan. God uses means to accomplish 
his plan, and the devil is one of his means. So John chapter 12, verse 40, the he could be the devil, but it doesn't change anything. In fact, I would argue that if we try to say God has no part in it, then we're greatly misunderstanding and failing to see the truth. Now, I don't believe John 12.40 is saying that the devil is the one who blinds us, even though I certainly believe the devil is the means by which God blinds people. Most commentators think that we shouldn't press the he-I pronoun transition. In the Hebrew Bible and in the Greek Bible, that he-I pronoun transition isn't even to be found. And it's very clear in the Hebrew Bible that when God says, make their hearts hard and their eyes blind, that that's a command from God. So what John is doing is loosely paraphrasing this, this command. You know, Commentators say this is a loose paraphrase of Isaiah chapter 6, and perhaps the he is God and the I is Jesus in the context. So it's not um, to be pressed. But in the last analysis, my point in saying all this is there is really no way, I believe, to exclude God from this verse and from the idea of hardening. I don't believe there's a way to do that. And we'll be misunderstanding scripture if we do that. So that's my answer to the first objection. Couldn't we interpret this in some other way? I don't believe so. We have to see God in this. So here's my second objection. What about the justice of it? How can God hold people responsible for their unbelief if he hardens them and they can't believe? Now that's a common objection, and it's interesting that Paul the Apostle addresses that objection in Romans chapter 9, true? Paul is talking about this topic, and there's an objector there who says, well, then there's injustice with God if that's the case. And Paul immediately responds by saying there is no injustice with God. So Paul starts by saying, yes, God hardens hearts, but there is no injustice with God. And how is that possible? Because Paul tells us this. The reason why God does not harden a heart or a person or a nation the reason why God does not harden them is entirely, 100%, a matter of mercy. That's what Paul says. Why is there not injustice with God when he hardens someone's heart? Because if he doesn't harden your heart, it's mercy. That's it. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he will have mercy, and he hardens whom he wills, Romans 9, 18. In other words, it's either mercy or it's hardening, which means not mercy. And both of those actions of God, giving mercy or giving hardening, one or the other is the only thing that you can have, are both directed towards sinners. Mercy is given to sinners. Mercy is given to the guilty. Mercy is given to those who deserve punishment. And God's saying, or Paul is saying, if God doesn't harden you, it's mercy. If you are hardened, that's just what you deserve. That's just punishment. That's just judgment. 
It's just God not giving you mercy. Do you see that? In other words, we're not dealing with sinless people. We're not dealing with neutral, blameless people. God is dealing with sinners who hate him, sinners who despise him, sinners who reject him. And God has two things he can do with people. He can show them mercy or he can not show them mercy, which would mean he hardens them in their hatred and punishes them for their hatred of him. It's interesting because everybody sees, with, sees this with Pharaoh. doesn't matter what Christian you talk to. Everybody sees this with Pharaoh. When we talk about Pharaoh's heart was hardened by God, everyone is quick to point out, ah, but remember, first, Pharaoh hardened his own heart, right? It's always mentioned. Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Pharaoh was already evil. Pharaoh was already proud. Pharaoh was already hating God. And God hardened his heart on top of that. God punished him. God confirmed him in his own evil ways. God didn't make Pharaoh hate him. God didn't make Pharaoh uh, choose to have a hard heart against him originally. God confirmed him in that. But Pharaoh was first. And that's absolutely true. God could have softened Pharaoh's heart, right? Moses goes to him and says, let my people go. And you've got this proud ruler, this ruler who doesn't care about the Hebrew God, this ruler who doesn't care about the Hebrews, who's content slaughtering the Hebrews, this ruler who's content illegally enslaving the Hebrews, this ruler who's got a huge ego trip, so much so that he doesn't bend the knee at all, even when God's judging him. God could have softened his heart, right? Moses could have said, let my people go, and God moved and softened his heart and says, all right. But God said, no, I'm going to let Pharaoh be. I'm going to not interfere here and soften his heart and give mercy to Pharaoh. I'm going to confirm Pharaoh in his evil ways as a judgment against Pharaoh, as a judgment against Egypt, so that I might declare my glory and my power in all the earth. So we see it with Pharaoh. But the point here in Paul and Romans 9 is that Pharaoh is not different than anyone else. Do you think you're better than Pharaoh? He was proud. I wasn't. I'm not. He was stubborn. I'm not. He hated God. I don't. But as John went and pointed out, Pharaoh is the type. He's the prototype of us all. What does Romans chapter 1 through 3 seek to prove? It seeks to prove how evil we all are, how no one fears God, no one glorifies God, no one gives God thanks, no one loves God, no one does good, no one does righteousness, and God gives us over to a reprobate mind. As judgment, it's not God being cruel, it's not God being unjust, it's God giving us exactly what we deserve. And if we don't get what we deserve, in other words, if a person isn't hardened, it's solely mercy. So I'd like to just ask you this morning, 
can you see and agree that God did that with Pharaoh? That's my question to you. Do you agree and see God did it with Pharaoh? He hardened Pharaoh's heart as a response to his already hard heart and hatred of God and evil. God confirmed him in it for his wise purposes of declaring his glory. Can you agree that God did it? He did not show mercy to Pharaoh. He chose to give Pharaoh punishment, the reward of his evil. And if you can agree that God did it, then essentially you're admitting it's not unjust for God to do that. That's just God giving judgment. It's not unjust. And therefore, it would not be unjust for God to do that if you can, if you can see that God did it. We can conclude from the biblical data the following. Unbelief is due to human evil and divine judgment on human evil. Therefore, people are wholly responsible for their unbelief. Because unbelief is due to our own wickedness and choice to be evil and turn from God. And the fact that people remain in unbelief is because God judges them justly for their unbelief. Belief, on the other hand, is due to God's mercy. God is thus wholly responsible for our faith. That doesn't mean that we're not involved in believing. You know, it doesn't mean that we don't actually believe and choose to follow the Lord. Many Christians are not even aware that God is the one who showed them mercy so that, they, that God softened their heart, that God by his spirit took the heart of stone out and put, on, put in his own heart, caused them to fear him and walk in his way. Many Christians are not even aware that's the case. You have to be taught that's the case in the Bible. It just kind of felt like you followed the Lord. So yes, you're involved in believing, but the final source of your faith is God, whereas with unbelief, the final source of your unbelief is yourself, and God is involved in that, in hardening you and confirming you in your unbelief. So that is my answer, and that's not just my answer, that's the answer that theologians have given to how can it be just that God hardens people? Well, the reason is, is because he's not dealing with innocent people. He's giving them what they deserve in his judgment and for his wise purpose. But the last objection, what about the love of God? <laughs> right? What about the love of God? Doesn't God want all to be saved? Doesn't the Bible tell us that? How then can he harden people. And I have to admit that the other two objections, I believe, friends, are easy. I really do. I think the other two objections are very clear. You know, can we interpret these things another way? I don't believe it's difficult to dispel with that objection. How is that just? I don't believe that's difficult to dispel with that objection. But the third objection, what about the love of God, is certainly harder to see, and it's harder to see because from a human perspective, it's hard to see. And we find ourselves like Job, observing God doing things that doesn't make sense to us, right? And we're saying, why is God doing that? It doesn't seem just or right or kind for, of God to do that. 
and we encounter action on God's part that, like Job, we don't understand. Paul tells us at the end of his discussion of Romans 9, 10, and 11 is that the judgments of God are unsearchable. Why does God harden people? Why does God harden one and not another? Why does God show mercy on one and not another? Doesn't he love everybody? He does. Well, then why? And these are questions that are very difficult to answer. Now, we can try to give a simplistic answer and just say, well, okay, you're right. That doesn't make any sense, so therefore, he doesn't harden anybody. We're going to retract because it doesn't make sense how, why he would do that. And I think that's a big mistake. Because the goal isn't just to believe always what makes sense to us. The goal is to believe what the Bible says. And as I have argued, I think it's pretty clear what the Bible says. So I, I think it's wiser for us to say, you know, this is something that's hard to understand. Or another simplistic answer is, oh, he doesn't love everybody, right? That'll just solve that problem. We'll just believe what the Bible says, that he hardens people, and just say he doesn't love everybody. That's an easy solution, too. And now we've got a God who doesn't love. What a mistake when the Bible over and over and over and over and over again affirms the loving kindness and the compassion and the love of God for all people. We can say some things, however. We can say this. God's judicial hardening takes nothing away from his love. Zero. Okay? So I want you to imagine the love of God as you've come to see it in Christ Jesus, the height and the depth and the breadth and the length and his loving kindness and his compassion because that's what the Bible shows us. Therefore, we may say that the fact that God hardens Pharaoh's heart and does that and hardens Israel's heart takes nothing away from that. God is a God of love. In fact, John himself, the one who's so keen to tell us why Israel doesn't believe, he's the one who tells us God is love and he's revealed his love for us in the cross in sending Jesus to be the propitiation for our sins. And so we see in the cross God's love for humanity. He doesn't want us to perish. He sees us perishing. And he gives his son, and his son dies for us, even though we're evil. So I've been arguing this morning that human beings are pretty evil. We hate God. We hate God a lot. And the reason why we reject God is not because the evidence isn't clear. It's because we don't have any cause to hate him. We just hate him. That's pretty bad. We've taken the side of the devil. And yet, what an amazing love, Paul says in Romans 5, that God would send his son to die for his enemies. And the Bible shows us over and over the pity of God. God is a God of compassion and pity. If anybody turns to him, they will not be rejected. If anyone calls on the name of the Lord, they'll be saved. If anyone has any motions towards God and says, God, help me, he takes pity on them. Psalm 107 says, he takes pity on sailors who are on the sea. 
who find themselves drowning and they call on God and he takes pity on them because he's a God of immense pity. He knows we're just dust and he cares for us deeply. And so we affirm with the Bible that God is love and he loves us and he pities us and he's compassionate and if you turn to him in faith, if you turn to him even with just a modicum of faith, if you turn to him asking for help, God is ready, eager to help you. He wants you to be saved. Here is what the hardness of God means, the hardening of God when he does it means. It means this, that God is not only love. That's what it means. So we affirm he is love in every way you can imagine. But we say, but remember something else, okay? Don't, don't be thinking of God as this Barney in the sky who loves, I love you, you know? We're one big happy family who just loves, 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 and there's not a bone in his body that would be wrathful or deliver justice. He is not only love. He is love, but he is also a God of justice and a God of wrath and a God of vengeance, and God pursues his glory in both salvation and in judgment. Now that's hard for us to wrap our minds around. I agree. That is really hard. How can God pursue his glory and salvation and judgment and be a God of love and a God of wrath at the same time without contradicting himself? That's something that is too wonderful for me to understand. For Augustine, the Christian Aristotle to understand. For David to understand. For Paul to understand. For Job to understand. That's just something that's hard for us as humans who don't understand what it is like to be a God who is a perfectly loving God and a perfectly just God and a perfect God who's worthy of all glory and who pursues that glory. I don't know. I'm not that, right? But it isn't one or the other. It isn't love or wrath. Nothing could be further from the Bible to say that. The God of the Bible is presented to us all throughout in this way that I'm, that I'm saying. Verse 41 of chapter 12, Isaiah says what he says when he sees the glory of the Lord. And as Isaiah is saying this when he sees God, and he sees God as this God who is high and lifted up on his throne, glorious, worshipped by the angels who are covering their face and their feet. He's this glorious God that when Isaiah sees him, he says, I'm dead. (laughs) This is not a God to be messed with. We're in big trouble. And then Isaiah also sees that God has provided an atonement through the Savior, through the suffering servant. And Isaiah is cleansed by the coal on the altar. And Isaiah later prophesies in Isaiah 53 that God sent his son to, be, to bear the wrath and the punishment that we deserve. But all throughout the book of Isaiah, Isaiah is describing God as this God of immense loving kindness and compassion and immense wrath. And it's only when you understand both of those things that you really 
can see God and marvel at his love and his cross because his wrath informs us of how amazing his love is. And his love also informs us of how amazing his wrath is as well. Because we see in the scriptures some things that help us reconcile his wrath and his love. Here, here's at least two things in the scripture that help us reconcile his wrath and his love. Number one, God judges and dispenses punishment in order to magnify his mercy. There's something that helps us kind of see how that goes together. That In the Bible, the, the judgment of God isn't just given kind of arbitrarily and the mercy of God's given arbitrarily, but they're, they're both working in the world in order to magnify who God is completely and to magnify ultimately his mercy. If we never knew his wrath and judgment, we wouldn't really know his mercy. But on the other hand, if we didn't know his love, we wouldn't really know his wrath either. Because God, as a God of wrath and judgment, is also presented to us in the Bible as a God who does not judge willingly, or he does not judge gladly, right? That's how God's presented in the Bible. When he judges, he says, I want you to turn because I don't take pleasure in the death and the destruction of the wicked. Now, they're going to be destroyed if they don't turn. But it's not that I, I'm happy about that or glad about that. In other words, when we see God's love, then we understand that his wrath is not capricious. His wrath is not cruel. But that God is a God who, when he gives wrath, gives it like a father who is grieved to do it. And he executes his wrath only because of his wise purpose and his wise plan. And he does it with a heart that, that weeps. I see that in God in the Bible. So as hard as it is to understand, there's two things that can help us kind of integrate them, that they work together to reveal who God is, and God, and they both show the nature of the other. He's a God who judges, and he's a God who loves. I believe that being a biblical Christian means humbling oneself before the word when the word says hard things that we don't understand. I believe being a biblical Christian in this instance means holding both the love of God and the justice of God, both the mercy of God and the hardening of God, both the kindness of God and the severity of God, and not nullifying one or the other, but being a biblical Christian means seeing God in the fullness of who he is and trusting in his love. I believe that is what being a biblical Christian is. So, in conclusion, John and Jesus and the prophets explain Israel's unbelief as a judgment from God. God's not being cruel or arbitrary, but Israel hates God, and God confirms them in that for his wise purpose of magnifying his mercy in the whole world. He confirms them in that. He hardens their heart. He blinds their eyes. He closes their ears, not because he loves doing that, but because that's what they deserve, and he's got a plan and a purpose for doing that in order to bring his mercy into full view in the world. That's the explanation. God's up to something, basically. 
And I'd like just to leave us very briefly with four practical effects of this knowledge. Number one, knowing this doctrine humbles us. Because as Christians, we realize the reason why I'm a believer is not because I'm smarter than anybody else. Right? The reason why I'm a believer is not because I'm morally superior than anyone else. I cared about God. They don't care about God. It's true that you care about God, and it's true that they don't care about God, but the reason that you care about God is because of God's undeserved mercy upon you, softening your heart, which you didn't have to do. And so God gets all the glory for us being believers, and we're humbled as we think about this. Number two, it encourages us, this doctrine, because we realize with all the craziness in the world and all the unbelief in the world and all the rejection of God in the world and all the persecution against Christians in this world, that doesn't mean God is not in control. God is sovereign on the throne and he has a plan and he's going to bring his purposes to a conclusion. So we're encouraged by this doctrine in the midst of what seems like a pretty discouraging world. We also are encouraged that God can soften the hearts of our loved ones. This doctrine warns us, number three, it shows us the danger of unbelief. It shows us how serious unbelief is, that unbelief is ultimately at bottom hatred of God, and that God may judge an unbeliever. And so that unbeliever has an urgency to believe. And we as Christians have an urgency to go and tell people to believe. You don't have forever. Believe while the light is among you. You don't know when God will just snuff out the light. Because God is a God who executes judgments now, not just later. What he did with Pharaoh, he does. So there's a warning about how serious unbelief is. I think if someone hears this doctrine aright, what they should do is say, oh God, have mercy on me and help me. <laughs> and God will answer. And fourthly, and lastly, in closing, this doctrine reveals to us a more complete view of God, a richer view of God, an unabridged view of God, and we see God as a God of love and as a God of justice. And each shed light on the other, making it richer and making us marvel more deeply at the cross where we're amazed that this God would die for us. So I want to exhort us to humble ourselves before our awesome God and let's adore him for who he is and for his amazing grace when we consider everything about who he is and when we consider just how evil we truly are. He is truly worthy of our praise for his awesome grace that he's shown toward us. Please stand with me and we'll, we'll pray.
Father, we thank you for your word that you have given to us. We thank you for the revelation of who you are. And we thank you for giving us ears and revealing to us your son. And Lord, these are hard things. They're hard to understand. But Lord, I pray that you would help us to take in everything that you have revealed and shown us about yourself, Lord, and that we would truly worship you as you are. And Father, I pray that you would, just as Paul prayed in Ephesians 3, that you would reveal to us the height and the depth and the length and the breadth of your love that passes knowledge, that we would see just what an amazingly good God you are and kind God you are, that you don't judge us, um, you don't judge this world gleefully or happily. Help us to dig into your heart more and more, Lord. And we just marvel, and I thank you for who you are, and we rejoice that you are strong and you are good and you are just. We thank you for your son and the refuge we have in him. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us be lights in this world, in the families that we are in, in the community that we're in, in the workplace that we're in. We are the sons of light. Help us to proclaim the message of your truth and of your righteousness and of who you are. And we ask that you'd soften hearts and save, Lord. You'd give us courage and you would increase, Lord, the harvest. That you might be glorified in all things we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.